Last time out, I was ranting on here about how much I hated Quantum Leap, despite its apparent popularity with the rest of the world. The thing is that I knew I didn't like, like it practically from the first time that I saw it. I knew that I'd never warm to it. Sometimes, of course, the opposite happens. You start out disliking something, then come back to it and find for a while at least that it's at least tolerable, which is what happened with Red Dwarf although the pure joy in which I found it tolerable didn't last that long. But to be fair, instead of going back to disliking it, I simply became indifferent to it. Conversely, there are those TV shows that you really liked when you first saw them, but upon becoming reacquainted with them after a long period of not seeing them, you find that you can now no longer stand this show. This has certainly been my recent experience upon encountering Monty Python's Flying Circus, when a streaming channel I have access to ran a marathon of the programme with back-to-back -back episodes. I initially tuned in right in the middle of that sketch featuring Eric Idle in drag screaming spam spam spam. I immediately recalled thinking Jesus Christ this is horrible. Further attempts to watch episodes elicited the same reaction. Apart from Terry Gilliam's animations none of it seemed funny anymore. It just came over as a bunch of overprivileged Oxford Oxbridge undergraduates showing us trying to show us all how clever they were. Bearing in mind that I first saw Python when I was a child in the early 70s and then thought it absolutely hilarious. I thought at first that it was simply a case of both the material and the presentation having aged badly. That and the fact that it had subsequently been repeated to death, imitated and parodied to exhaustion. I thought perhaps those were other reasons why it no longer seemed funny. It had just become over-familiar. But then I thought back to my childhood and realised, in retrospect, the younger me had only really been entranced by these aforementioned animations and sketches like the Ministry of Funny Walks. Most of the rest of it frequently baffled my seven-year-old self. As I got older, I appreciated the stuff I hadn't really understood more, but I never found it as funny as I thought I had as a young child. Of course, hearing every sketch being badly recounted by idiots in the students' union common room than the saloon bars of various pubs for decades afterwards has, has doubtless also blunted the show's impact for me. Still, as I've discovered as a result of binge-watching various other old TV series on the aforementioned streaming channel, TV comedy often doesn't age well. They've run Mork and Mindy a few times, and boy, how irritating does Robin Williams seem now? Yet back in the day, it all seemed so fresh and innovative. Well, the first season at least. Then they started tinkering with the format from season two and it rapidly went down the toilet. Much as I like nostalgia, there are definitely times when it's better not to go back and binge watch as those shows you used to love will only disappoint you. It's probably better just to hang on to your cherished, me cherished memories of what you thought they were like. There's a new cop on the Vice Squad. Who does things a little differently. A cop who's going to clean up the man's world. The cop is a woman. Do you like taking the big ride? You must be the lady called Silk. By night, she's smooth as silk. Head 
Space Army. Oh, it's silk. The mob are trying to waste her. She's the last one in their way. But the more she's pushed... You know, I don't know why they call you silk. The more she fights back. Silk, she's out to get even. It took me a few minutes of 1986's Silk to realise that the action was meant to be taking place in Hawaii, thinking it looked more like the Philippines, which is probably because that's where it was filmed. Another low-budget action movie from prolific Filipino director Ciro H. Santiago. Silk, as can be gathered from the trailer, was marketed as part of the lone rogue cop genre, but with a female star, promising lots of shootings, explosions and beatings along the way as she kicks ass in order to get results. The reality of the film, however, is somewhat different. Well, it does indeed muster plenty of action, not to mention shootings, explosions and beatings. Anyone expecting to see a sassy female badass cop defying authority, bending the law, the breaking point and telling the DA to shove their indictments up their jacksie, they're likely to be disappointed. Detective Jenny Silk Slayton might be tough as nails, but surprisingly she's quite the team player cooperating with both colleagues and other agencies to bring down those bad guys. Silk is one of those movies that falls into that vast category of films that could never be described as good, yet aren't actually that bad. There's certainly nothing remotely original about its storyline, which works its way through just about every cop movie cliché already established by a thousand other movies. Moreover, the script serves up an uninspired and sometimes clunky dialogue to a cast of mostly, mostly serviceable rather than talented actors. Star Sesverell, while not exactly charismatic, is curiously impressive with her hair slicked back for the action sequences, looking quite convincing as she vigorously shoots, beats and kicks assorted villains and thugs. But Santiago moves all along at a good pace, setting up a sufficient number of action sequences to maintain the audience's attention which isn't surprising as he's been making these sorts of movies since the early 70s i mean he turned out fly me in 1973 and tnt jackson in 1974 for rogers Cor corman's new year new new world pictures for instance both filmed in the philippines and both featuring a lot of very similar action scenes this time, it has to be said, he does seem to up his game with some larger scale action sequences than usual. Unfortunately, the best of these, an impressively staged chase and shootout involving cars and a train, comes right at the beginning of the film, and nothing that follows can ever quite live up to this early promise. Nevertheless, Silk is, a somewhat, above, is somewhat above average for a direct-to-video action film. And indeed, Silk was successful enough that a sequel, Silk 2, followed in 1989, with Santiago still at the helm, but with a different leading lady.
Is this the right street? The city of Milan is known for its beautiful women. That's my little sister. Race into the runway. I'll be out of here in about an hour. Dinner's at seven. Love you. Love you too. But someone is preying on them. What we got here? Another body. Mutilation of the face. Early 20s. Appears to be our guy. His intentions were clear. His methods are brutal. Fuck you. No more. <laughs> My sister is missing. She was supposed to meet me at her apartment. She's very beautiful. His motives are twisted. And he's hiding in plain sight. I mean, the wonder of the criminal records are came out every can driver. That's the least. 1,257 names. Makes you want to walk. Now. She's still alive. I know it. With every clue. Like most of these cases, the suspects are entirely motivated by the ritual. They say right. One man. That's all I have. Okay. Steps closer to a killer. He's giving us his biography. Leaving us the places in his past. And deeper. The methods aren't exactly by the book. Into madness. It's a monster. You have no idea. Why don't you tell me what's going on here? You know something. Wait! Tell me where she is. Sometimes you gotta do what has to be done. I've mentioned before that since I've been taking various pills for my blood pressure, my dreams have become remarkably vivid and frequently memorable to my waking self. They seem to have gone through many phases from sort of widescreen action through the surreal to curiously, to curiously knowing where my dream self can actually remember and reference in dream previous dreams. Increasingly, I'm well aware that I'm dreaming, but let it carry on to see where it goes. My usual cue for realising it's a dream is the presence of, presence of someone I know is dead, or sometimes simply the fact that the whole scene has changed around me without a, log a logical segue. Of late, they've taken a cinematic turn, whereby the perspective seems to pull back in order to reveal that the weird stuff that's been go going on is actually a film that I'm watching on a TV, or sometimes a film that I'm involved with making, into the latter category follows a dream I had the other week in which some kind of video nasty version of, an Agatha, of Agatha Christie's and then there was one uh, sort of type of film was unfolding with the various characters dying truly horror, bizarre and gory deaths. Then, just as it was coming to a climax, the camera, so to speak, pulled back and instead of being involved in events, I was directing them on a film set, at which point I woke up. Then, more, even more recently, I found myself involved in some kind of bizarre giallo-type drama. Actually, it didn't start that way, but I don't really recall the earlier part of the dream. Only the part where a hunt for some crazy killer ended up at a creepy house in the cemetery at Night Nursery, where he'd stashed loads of his victims. There were bodies everywhere. 
the common denominator being they all had birthmarks of some kind. That apparently was how he selected his victims. Lots of Italian exploitation traits were on display in the dream. Even that red-haired little girl, who seemed to turn up in every other Italian horror film made in the early to mid-70s. And as an aside, the actress's career uh, went on hiatus when she reached her teens, while she finished her education. And the, she subsequently made some film appearances as an adult, but left acting to pursue a career as, I believe, a speech therapist. Anyway, in the dream, it was her murder that led to the house. She was, as a character was in Barren Blood, for instance, possessed of some kind of psychic powers and about to reveal the killer's identity. While this was going on, I sort of knew that it wasn't real. I noted that the chief pathologist had a head like a skull, but decided not to say anything as nobody else was commenting on it. Then it suddenly pulled back to reveal that it was a film I was watching on TV, at which point things went off on a tangent as so the dream became about some kind of school reunion I was preparing for, which involved me having to wear my old school tie. Quite why that tie was so significant in this part of the dream, I don't know, as I went to a state school, and it was probably the same design of tie used by scores of other state schools. It certainly wouldn't have opened any doors for me. I have no idea what any of this means, if anything at all. Maybe this new development in the way, way in which my sleeping brain presents my dreams to me is the result of having watched too much schlock of late. Who knows? All I do know is that my medication-fueled dreams, and I'm told that the statin I take, take daily is a likely culprit, continue to entertain me hugely in both my sleeping and waking hours. Deprived, the People's Army of Watts was organized to rid the community of drugs, prostitution, and crime. The project was a total wipeout. We can't stop the gangsters from working here. We can at least protect our people from their brutality. Protection is one thing, but an all-out war is something else. Oh, come on now. I know you, Koja. I only want them for protection. They had to become the Black Gestapo, the new master race. You shot one of my soldiers. You see, we got a new deal now. You shoot one of my soldiers, and I shoot one of your gorillas. I mean, they made a call on us, and we got to answer, right? This is now my army, and we're at war. The Black Gestapo. When they declare war, it's all out. All the way out. We, we made a deal! The deal was, I wouldn't shoot your white ass off. <laughs> And if they touch a brother's woman... Okay. Wait. Go ahead and wait, me. Honking bastard. This is really your style, isn't it? I bet this is about the only way you can get laid. That really You have done well. The white community will feel our power. Okay, hockey. You can come out now. The Black Gestapo. Victory through violence and vengeance for the new master race. Twitter has always been a hotbed of crazy conspiracy nuts. But since Elon Musk bought it, 
things to have got things seem to have gotten worse. Before, if you're unlucky, one or two of these crackpots might pop up in a trending topic, unless you deliberately clicked on an obviously crackpot trending topic, of course. Nowadays, it doesn't matter how serious the topic is. You'll find it just full of these idiots spewing out their demented opinions. I'm guessing it's because, thanks to Musk and the Nazification of Twitter, most regular sane people just don't bother posting anymore. I increasingly find myself asking why I'm still there. But some of their delusions are just so cracked that you're left wondering just how demented someone needs to be in order to swallow them. A lot of them still centre on the war on Ukraine, with the Putin apologists not just regurgitating every piece of Russian propaganda and disinformation out there, but also coming up with some bizarre shit of their own. Just the other day I came across one who kept posting in a topic which had nothing to do with the conflict, that aid to Ukraine is in fact the world's biggest money laundering scheme. Now, I'm not sure how they think money laundering works. Nobody's actually getting any money back for the weapons, which are mostly donated rather than bought for Ukraine, in order that they can defend themselves against Russia's unprovoked aggression. But I suppose that starting a war in order to launder money, which is presumably dirty for some unspecified reason, is the obvious way to do it, isn't it? I mean, you know, and presumably Russia must be getting a cut as payment for invading Ukraine in the first place in order to set it all up. <sighs> but the cranks have got a new conflict to spin the moronic conspiracy fantasies around in the form of the Gaza-Israeli hostilities, which are currently going on. Here it, now, here it gets interesting with regard to who supports which side and the conspiracies they weave. Now, while you might expect it to be a simple left-right split with the former favouring the Palestinians and the right Israel, a visit to any trending topic or hashtag about the conflict on Twitter will reveal a clear schism between different parts of the extreme right on this subject. I was, for instance, surprised to find Nick Griffin, late of the British National Party, supporting the Palestinians. Not a surprise there was to find that he was actually still around, having been eclipsed in the realm of right-wing lunacy years ago by the likes of the EDL, UKIP and Reform. But when you think about it, his position makes sense, because those Israelis are Jews, and after all, Nick is an old-school right-wing extremist. A Nazi, in fact. True to his cracked principles. Stephen Yaxley Lennon, a.k.a. Tommy Robinson, football hooligan, convicted mortgage fraud, fraudster girlfriend beater and uh, and also convicted for various drug offences and would-be leader of the British patriotic extreme right on the other hand favours Israel in the conflict because in his wing of far-right extremism the Muslims have replaced the Jews as their main bogeyman presumably because they're easier for his idiot supporters to recognise I mean, those Jews, they can look just like us, you know. So we have the fascinating sight of Nick Griffin and his ex-BNP right-wing extremists lining up with the left's cult of Corbyn in supporting Hamas, while our other, other favourite British nationalist bastard, Yaxley Lenin, lines up with mainstream British politicians of all stripes because the official position of both Labour and Conservative Party is basically pro-Israeli. As I say, they're all backing Israel. Now, this is a situation which I really think should give our legitimate parties and movements on both left and right cause for concern. 1967. Doctors and scientists predicted it. 
blue sunshine. Did you ever hear the words blue sunshine back in school? Jerry didn't do this. Like this. solve the mystery. The victims, Wendy Fleming, divorcee. Wendy! Blue Sunshine. John O'Malley, Lieutenant Los Angeles Police Department. Blue Sunshine. Franny Scott. Photographer. Hey, wait a minute. Blue Sunshine. Wayne Mulligan, campaign manager, Blue Sunshine. <laughs> Dr. David Bloom. Kelly. Resident surgeon. Give me a sponge. I said a long instrument. 1977. The nightmare has begun. Blue sunshine. Lieberman's second directorial effort is every bit as offbeat, quirky and uncategorizable as his first, 1976's Squirm. While the earlier film might nominally be an eco-horror film, with a subtext of sexual violence and the, re the reactionary and repressive societal norms of isolated rural communities, 1977's Blue Sunshine is far less easily categorised. Perhaps its closest equivalents, though, are Cronenberg's Rabbit and Shivers, sharing their depictions of eruptions of brutality against an otherwise unremarkable urban backdrop, and protagonists transformed from ordinary citizens into violent monsters as, as a result of their bodies being infected. But where Cronenberg's films featured literal infections by viruses and parasites, Blue Sunshine focuses upon chemical infection by the eponymous LSD variant, which, after a ten-year delay, wreaks both physical and mental transformations upon those who had taken it. The ultimate in bad trips, in fact. On the face of it, this would seem to make the film some kind of reactionary, cautionary tale about the perils of drugs. See, those damn liberal hippies and their LSD really were a bunch of degenerates who would destroy society except that it isn't that simple, with the film gradually revealing that both those who had taken the drugs and those who had peddled them are actually all respectable middle-class professionals, many occupying positions of authority. The weirdness of the events that unfold in Blue Sunshine 
are emphasised by Lieberman's use of highly conventional narrative structures. The plot, for instance, unfolds in the form of an investigation by a hero constantly being blamed by the authorities for the killings being committed by the Blue Sunshine victims, forcing him to be a fugitive, a classic noir motif. From the outset, he's on the run, with the film opening with a college reunion at a cabin in the woods, during which, um, during some horseplay there, is revealed that one of the participants is bald when his wig is inadvertently pulled off. He runs off into the woods. When some of the others go to look for him, he returns and brutally murders those still at the cabin, before attacking the returning searchers, and then running off again. The hero, Jerry Zipkin, finds himself chased through the woods by his homicidal friend, reaching a road where the maniac is hit and killed by a truck. Zipkin finds himself blamed both for this death and the murders, of the murders at the cabin, evading the police to get to the city where he tries to figure out what has turned his friend into a bald, violent maniac. In the course of invest his investigation, he finds that his friend's experience wasn't unique. A police officer suffering severe, hair, severe hair, hair loss, for instance, had recently suddenly gone berserk and murdered his family. In a subplot, another subplot, a divorced mother of two young children finds herself suffering hair loss and feelings of aggression, while her estranged husband campaigns for a seat in Congress. Eventually, Zipkin finds that the common denominator between those affected is that they were all at college together ten years earlier and had taken the LSD-variant Blue Sunshine. Except the ex-husband, who is the one selling the drug. Something he, of course, denies and, Zipkin facing murder charges, is confident won't come out. Unfortunately, however, his own campaign manager stroke bodyguard was himself one of the politician's best customers back in college. This very conventional investigatory plot is punctuated by outbursts of bizarre violence, producing some striking and highly memorable images of bald-headed lunatics wielding knives or breaking up shopping centres. The bodyguard's climactic rampage through a disco overspilling into a shopping mall. There's a bald maniac in there and he's going apeshit, a character cries. Can't quite top the sight of the politician's ex-wife, suddenly pull off a wig and menace her children with a large kitchen knife when it comes to disturbing bizarreness. It is, of course, significant that much of the violence takes place against backdrops symbolic of 70s consumerism, a shopping mall, a disco, the ex-wife's neat apartment of the type seen in commercials for lifestyle products. As the story is, in essence, about the subversion of 60s ideals by naked capitalism, in the form of the drug-dealing future congressman. The quest for profit and material gain, rather than free love hippies or even hallucinogenic drugs themselves, lies at the root of all the mayhem that unfolds in blue sunshine. Lieberman's direction plays fast and loose with audience expectations, the backwards opening suggesting some kind of rural slasher scenario, which ends abruptly when the killer goes under the wheels of that truck with the action switching instead to sunlit urban California, all concrete mouths and modernist buildings, as it turns into more of a suspense drama, as we wait to see who is going to go bald and crazy next. Unfortunately, the change in scenario also results in the slowing of the film's pace, which Lieberman never quite manages to speed up again. Some quirky casting, including Zalman King before he turned director of Erotica 
Zipkin and Lost in Space's Mark Goddard as the politician, his secret shadiness contrasting radically with his image as upright, clean-cut space pilot Major West in the Irwin Allen series, helps things along. In turns bewildering, bizarre and unsettling, Blue Sunshine's main fault is that, ultimately, it doesn't really know where to go with its central idea, resulting in a somewhat underwhelming conclusion. Probably best seen as a satirical black comedy rather than a pure horror or science fiction film, it does, however, boast an original concept, setting it apart from the usual zombies, slashes and out-of-control wild animals that seem to be increasingly dominating those genres in the 70s. Mr. Jarman says that, says that he's taking his case uh, to the public. Well, then why does he refuse to meet me in open debate? We have to build a fast track. Things that people. I'm sorry, I'll have it fixed in a second. Tell me what I know. Don't make me. Will you give me some Put that damn phone down and let's get this straight. I want to know what the hell this campaign is. Okay, now for starters, we got to cut your hair in 86 and sideburns. All right, let's Wait. go. I wonder if anybody understood what I was trying to do. Don't worry, son. It won't make any difference. But increasingly in this country, candidates are merging the two, selling themselves like an underarm deodorant in commercials just long enough to pound in some mindless slogan that cheapens candidate and voter alike. Those early hard statements of his are turning into mush. Specific policies dissolve into old generalities. The voters are being asked to choose McKay the way they choose a detergent. Yeah, you look uptight and uncool, nobody's listening, nobody's digging you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for a walk on the beach. We could talk on the way to the banquet. Or we could not go to the banquet. I just want to talk. Don't do this. Oh, that's very nice. Oh, against the white. Vote once. Vote twice. For Bill McKay. You middle-class honkies. And it's going to be decided by you. What about the group in San Diego? Never mind that. We've got a fire in Malibu. It's perfect. The poor against the less poor. <laughs> Losing 15 minutes of free airtime is like throwing away $80,000. Now go on, Rich. The young against the old. Our faith in ourselves and our faith in our country. Somebody says fuck pig at the COVID inquiry, and lo and behold, David Cameron reappears. Coincidence? I think not. 
I know that elitism has become a dirty word and we're not meant to use it these days because it's, you know, elitist. But I think that it's long overdue a comeback in British politics. Not in the sense of us being ruled by elites drawn from Eton and other public, public schools, which is what we have now. Even though, even though these self-same political reader, uh, leaders are the very people condemning the idea of elites and elitism, but in the sense that maybe we should be more selective as to who we allow to even stand for elected office. I mean, just look at the likes of Suella Braverman, a card-carrying right-wing loon and probable sociopath, and ask yourself just how any sane person could possibly think that she was fit for public office let alone be Home Secretary, and vote for her. Not just her, of course. There's a whole legion of them out there. Liz Truss, Lee Anderson, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, Nadine Dorries. The list seems endless. They're all certifiably insane, not to say incompetent, which is even worse, yet have been elected as our representatives and elevated to senior governmental positions. What does this tell us? That there are a lot of equally foaming at the mouth insane psychopaths eligible to vote out there who keep electing these loons? Or is it just they're given no choice as they're the only candidates they're being offered to vote for if they want to vote for a conservative candidate or what they think is a conservative candidate? Because that's the real problem. The selection process for candidates is clearly flawed, allowing any loon to stand for public office. Clearly the selection process needs to be taken out of the hands of local political parties and an agreed set of criteria need to be set out in order that would-be candidates meet a certain minimum standards, like not being mad, or a Nazi, or an idiot. For those meeting these standards, certification could be issued, qualifying individuals to stand as candidates for elected office, regardless of which party for any party they like. No certificate, no certificate, no election. Yeah, I know, we'd be creating a new political elite, but at least it would be an elite based upon sanity, decency and competence. Just look at the state of our political leadership and ask yourself whether that would really be so bad. It certainly couldn't be any worse than what we have now, with patronage money and a willingness to pander to the basest prejudices of a tiny number of party activists seem to be the overriding factors when it comes to getting a chance to stand as an elected representative. After all, we expect other professionals to be properly qualified, from doctors and lawyers to quantity surveyors. So why not political representatives? I mean, damn it, it isn't just professionals we expect to be licensed. To drive a vehicle, operate heavy machinery, or look after children, you have to hold the requisite qualifications. So yeah, I'm all for political elites, as long as they are properly qualified and regulated according to a set of agreed rules. Maria. Oh, no, not her, too. Well, how did it happen? Well, you were on guard duty. You must have seen something. I saw Maria going through the clearing, and I followed her. 
Then I heard the noise in the trees, and I stopped to investigate, but I didn't see anything. Then I headed out after her again, and I found her lying in the water. Maybe that man killed a girl. Hey, man, I liked her too, and she was too young to die. You keep looking at me like that, I'm gonna bust you in the mouth. You threaten me, I kill you. Okay, you two, this won't resolve anything. It's obvious the girl drowned. Drowned? What the hell are you talking about? She could swim before she could walk. Now somebody or something had to kill her. I admit the whole affair is very strange, but accidents do happen. Now, what the hell are you talking about? Four people have died already. You trying to tell me it was accidental? No, I don't go along with that. Look, Forrest, if you're accusing Cal, he's been with me a lifetime. I'm not accusing Cal. We were all in the camp. Only Cal was in the forest. Only he could have done it. I can see that talking isn't going to do any good. We must take more care. 1982's horror Safari, also known as Invaders of the Lost Gold, is an Italian-Filipino production boasting an impressive-looking cast of has-beens, exploitation favourites and TV stars. Stuart Whitman and Edmund Purdom certainly fall into the first category, while Purdom had long been a resident of Italian exploitation movies after the failure of his brief Hollywood career, it's sad to see a washed-up Whitman, a perfectly decent second-ranking leading man, reduced to appearing in these films. They are ex supported by exploitation regulars Laura Gemser, Woody Stroden, Harold Sakata, while Glynis Barber, fresh from a stint in Blake 7, but prior to a starring turn in Dempsey and Makepeace, provides the glamour. But perhaps most surprising is the presence of Alan Birkinshaw in the director's chair, famous or infamous for directing the ultra-low budget, not to mention utterly bizarre, British slasher Killer's Moon in 1978. It's hard to know whether Horror Safari was a step up or a step down for him. It was certainly a departure, bearing in mind that his first two features had been a sex comedy, Confessions of a Sex Maniac in 1974, and a slash of the aforementioned Killer's Moon. In co contrast to those two, Horror Safari is a jungle treasure hunt adventure, clearly taking some of its inspiration from the then popular Italian cannibal films, but without the flesh-eating natives. That said, the film's opening with its hordes of hostile natives, chasing a group of Japanese soldiers laden with gold through the Philippines jungle, spearing and decapitating various of them, is clearly intended to mislead the unwary into believing that they might just be getting some cannibal capers. Despite the spirited 1945 set prologue, once the film flashes forward to the then present of the 80s, it quickly gets bogged down in the details of the organisation of an expedition to recover the Japanese gold from the jungle. Smarmy rogue Ed Edmund Purdom has learned the location of the gold from the only surviving Japanese soldier, the other two committed suicide rather than speak to him, an understandable reaction to Purdom turning up on your doorstep. Anyway, the last of them is played by Harold Sakata, odd job himself, but he doesn't have the money to, to finance the expedition. Consequently, he's reluctantly forced to turn to wealthy Douglas Jefferson, played by David DeMaron, for help. He, in turn, wants to have the expedition led by his own man, disgraced explorer Mark Forrest, played by Whitman, who had once tried to kill Purdom. Again, entirely understandable. Yet more people join the expedition, including Forrest Buddy, Cal, played by Woody Strode, Jefferson's daughter, played by Glynis Barber, 
and a boat captain in his other half, the other half being played by Laura Gemser. The latter is also a former squeeze of forests, plus there are a whole phalanx of porters. Unfortunately, it takes what seems like an age to assemble this lot, with the film past the halfway point before we get back to that jungle, which is now seemingly bereft of crazed headhunting natives. Despite the lack of headhunters, the jungle proves a perilous place to be, with various members of the expedition falling prey to hazards like crocodiles, although there's nothing graphic shown. All we get is an alternation between stock footage of a snarling crocodile intercut with a screaming actor, the camera zooming further in on his face each time to denote the attack. The most mysterious death, though, is that of Gemster's character, who drops dead for, for no apparent reason while bathing in a pool, but not before having fulfilled the film's requirement for some female nudity, of course. Even Purdom vanishes along the way, thankfully. Eventually, only Whitman, Barber and Sakata are left to find the cavern where the gold is hidden. Except, of course, that dastardly Purdom isn't dead, unfortunately, and turns up to try and kill them all and take the treasure for himself. The whole film is every bit as predictable as it sounds and moves at a deathly pace to boot. I mean, Birkinshaw does his best with a turgid script that allows little room for plot or character development, let alone any action or thrills. The dialogue is clunky and delivered without conviction by most of the cast, while production values are generally poor. The, gen the jungle sequences, however, generally look very good, with Birkinshaw making the most uh, the script will allow him to of the Filipino locations. The only time he is really able to put together the sort of action sequence you'd expect in this sort of jungle adventure is the World War II set prologue, with its well-staged and filmed chase through the jungle. Ultimately, Horror Safari is simply not exciting enough to be an action-adventure film, nor is it horrific enough, despite the title, offering only mild thrills, to qualify as any kind of jungle horror film. As a side note, a few years later, Birkinshaw would direct another jungle set film, a version of Agatha's Christie and Then There Were None, set on an African safari, this time for Harry Allen Towers. Whether it's any better than Horror Safari, which has many plot similarities, I have no idea, but it does star Frank Stallone, and I'll let you draw your own conclusions from that. <laughs> 